Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today, I'm excited to talk to Danny Lore about Queen of Bad Dreams and their other comic work. Uh, very exciting sci-fi work, Queen of Bad Dreams from Vault Comics. Highly recommend people check it out. We're going to dig deep on what is a fully available uh, collected edition, a complete story of Queen of Bad Dreams today. Uh, it's kind of this world, uh, a sci-fi world of dream landscapes coming to life, if you will. But it's kind of about the investigative procedure and then also very much about the social and and sort of the implications of what it means to be real, to be someone who has agency in this world, and a whole lot more. So I'm going to talk to Danny about that and a lot more about the process of making comics. Danny, thanks so much for joining. How are you doing today? Well, thanks for having me, man. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, as we talk, I'm watching my cat decide whether she's going to leap at me, which will be very exciting at some point. Um, but, you know, just... Uh, Making making do with the world as it is, uh, trying to get as much writing done as possible, uh, and um, chatting like this, which is a better op uh, alternative to you know all the stressing we could possibly do. I'd rather um, talk about comics. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, I've I've been balancing that this week as well. So we're recording this um, the week that uh, you know domestic terrorists stormed the the Capitol building in D.C., uh, which has obviously been a very stressful week for a lot of people, very anxiety filled. Is that Danny as a creator? Is that something where you find yourself like, can you get work done? Like, is that a safe haven to retreat to? Um, or is it just like, it's just impossible? Because I, I definitely had that fight this week just with Comic Book Herald stuff, like that balance of like, I don't know, it like feels trivial, but then at the same time, it's like, that's a thing I know I can sink into that, that I control and feels kind of safe. How does, how does that work for you? Uh, for me, it really depends on the project I'm working on currently. Yeah. Um, a lot of my work is kind of um, about social justice in a lot of ways. Uh, and I tend to be uh, fueled a little bit with uh, spite and anger <laughs> about the world. So um, depending where I am uh, in, in a piece, uh, sometimes it's just natural to kind of like go into the work. And that's uh, a way that I feel comfortable kind of expressing my frustrations and fears. Yeah. Um, I think more so than the work itself, though, it'll actually be the fact that uh, I am one of those people who is very much online. Um, and so part of the issue with doing the work is that I tend to be near my computer, uh, actually, for mm -hmm. that reason, uh, in December. Uh, and now I've kind of switched to doing a lot of handwriting mm. uh, of my projects before I type them up. Uh, in part to give myself as much time away from the computer and therefore social media as possible when I'm working, yeah. uh, which uh, has been a really great distraction. Um, and then other days, you know, I could be working on a script and clean my kitchen for 10 hours like I did yesterday. So, you know, it's kind of a toss up. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. The life of the freelancer. That, that's yeah. interesting that you went to, to hand scripting because um, I, I found when I try to do that to get away from distractions, uh, it can, it's great to get away from the distractions, but at the same time, there's like, I can type so much faster than I can handwrite. Yeah. There's like it on one hand, it's good because it forces, it like makes you think about things maybe a little differently. Are you finding that it's actually like altering your creativity at all? Um, uh, yeah, that's actually the slowing down of my thought process is really one of the reasons I like handwriting. Um, yeah. uh, as a general sense, when I do prose, I tend to, uh, plan by hand and then write the prose online. Uh, like uh, on my computer, um, because once I have like a good strong outline and I have my notes, uh, writing prose comes pretty quickly to me once I know what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. So typing is better for that. Um, but typing planning rarely works for me. 
uh, on a first go, uh, in part because like it's it's very fast, right? Um, and you know, like I I have kind of gotten into the outlining process is different for each project, but I have a very much like backside of the paper uh, is kept blank mostly because it'll be any annotations I have for like the page next to it, you know, kind of like system uh, that that really works, you know, like it is easier for me to go in with a different color pen and like mark up my notes than it is to go back in uh, on a computer. Um, sometimes I struggle to reread uh, what I've written uh, on a computer screen. Um, I have uh, ADD um, occasionally very badly. So just rereading um, sometimes if I have to go more than uh, like two or three bouts of rereading um, on the screen, I stop being able to kind of process my own words. Yeah. Um, and as I got into comics, I was doing a lot of trying to do a lot of the writing on the computer, but I realized that the entire process for me as someone who's initially a prose writer uh, is closer to outlining uh, than it is to the writing prose stage, even mm -hmm. when I'm writing a script. Um, you know, I kind of go from big summary to a page by page and then, I figure out what has to happen on each page. And I have a pretty good sense at this point of how many panels that translates to. So I kind of like then estimate the panel numbers. Yeah. And then um, a system that works for me, because in case you can't tell, I am very wordy, uh, is I try to script out without any dialogue through the first pass. Hmm. Um, this is in part to make sure that I'm not saying things in the script that the art can do. You know, like, so basically I make notes about what the general dialogue is and then I kind of go through and I'm like, okay, looking at these panels, what isn't clear from the, from like, you know, the description of the art, what would I need to be said to keep moving the story forward yeah. and what is obvious by, you know, the shape of the panel. Um, so I kind of just go more and more detailed outlines until finally there's like a, a script. So handwriting works really, really well for me. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that is very interesting. Because that's that's something we joke a lot about. We we're doing it. We do a reading club here on the site about like Marvel comics. And when you go to the 60s, for example, it'll be Kirby laying out a scene exactly as it needs to be told. And then Stanley replicating in dialogue what is happening on the page, right? It's, yeah. it's a group of older comics. Um, I feel like that approach that you're taking definitely obviously like <laughs> there's been a lot of modernization since then, but definitely that's one good way to get around that. Um, cool. So let's talk about Queen of Bad Dreams a little bit. This is a book that uh, you produced through Vault. You said, you know, you have kind of this background as a prose writer. Um, this is one of your, not your first, but one of your bigger um, early comics works. Uh, Queen of this Bad is Dreams. actually my, my first solo. Oh, it is uh, first solo. It, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of things uh, with Vita Ayala, or solo writer rather, um, because uh, Dervla Kelly, the colorist, and Jordi Perez, the artist, had a lot to do with the forming of right. Queen of Bad Dreams. Uh, Vita Ayala and I had been writing together and pitching for a bit, but this was uh, the first time where I was like, you know, it was me as writer credit. So let's let's talk about that then. Mm -hmm. So what brought what brought Queen of Bad Dreams to life, and then as, as particularly like what brought it to life as a solo project? Were you something like I want to step out and like do this one? You know, not co-writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was um, a, just a series of uh, coincidental comic events kind of caused this. So Queen of Bad Dreams really started out as um, two or three sentences in a list of, I keep an ongoing going list of just short story ideas that I'm not like ready to do. And it was actually intended to be like a, a short story mm -hmm. uh, initially. Um, 
I'm a big uh, James Bond fan, um, you know, and I'm a, and I think when I first came up with a, a basic concept, Spectre, I don't, I was a little after Spectre came out, uh, but I was, uh, um, that and a couple of other ideas uh, came from kind of the, the, the usage of the love interest in action. Okay. Uh, to a good degree, which kind of went into then like the manic pixie girl kind of concept. Um, and at the time I was coming up with this idea, there was a big um, kind of surge in uh, marginalized creators, in this case, uh, women in particular, who were uh, doing um, takes on Lovecraftian mythos, yeah. which were really cool. You know, like uh, uh, a lot of concepts about the dreamlands and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But then specifically, Queen of Bad Dreams was on a list uh, that, uh, you know, like when I was looking for collaborators, was like, which one, you know, which, I'll do whichever one, you know, like you dig. And like Queen was the one picked. Um, but then as I was like looking to pitch it, I actually wrote the whole first script, uh, I think, before uh, any of the rest of the team had signed on. Um, I happened to have met Adrian from Vault um, when I was editing the Good Fight anthology with okay. like Adam Ferris um who's absolutely amazing um uh because uh adam was looking for an editor and adrian introduced us uh and um i really reached out to adrian kind of like as a mentor for that because it was like a big it was my biggest editing project thus far i'd done some freelance before that um and through that we got to talk a lot about uh both editing as a process but also like you know social justice projects in general um yeah. So I was really interested in working with him. And then <laughs> I did the thing that I almost always would recommend you don't do. Um, I, in fact, so wasn't sure whether I should do this that I remember distinctly calling up Vita like, yo, should I email him? And Vita being like, yes, just just go and do it. Um, where I had been tweeting about, you know, like just running through, you know, like, oh, I finished my outline for this thing. You know, oh, I'm, you know, like almost done with this pitch I want to, you know, send out, et cetera. And he was liking my tweets. Um, so I went to the Vault website and they didn't have open submissions, but I already had his email and I was like, okay, Vita, I'm just going to do it. I'm feeling real br- like brave tonight. And I just emailed him and I was like, hey, I know that you didn't have any open submissions, but you've been, you've been liking all my tweets about working uh, on a pitch I want to send out. Can I send it to you? And he was like, absolutely. And that's just kind of how... Nice, that yeah. started um uh and then like the whole story kind of uh you know fell out through there um w- you know jordy came on and just had those amazing character concepts and dervla was actually uh a really really fun because we've actually known each other for years uh and then fell out of contact for a little bit uh like you know during our you know uh younger you know college nerd days online uh, we kind of flirted in the same circles mm-hmm. um and uh as we were floating there and then like we just kind of weren't we just happened to you know fall out of contact for like a year or two and then we came back and even though the circles we we were in weren't comics at all we had both started comic careers yeah uh so when she was suggested uh as a colorist i was like yes please and please tell her uh that it is danny and which twitter account it is and then she was like absolutely like we're just doing this now uh, yeah. So it's it's really fun, you know, like just kind of the way that that worked out. Uh, it's it's super cool to have had that team on on like my first book. 
Yeah, no, it's a great creative <laughs> collaboration. I mean, it, it artistically it looks awesome. I mean, it's you Thank know, you, you and you, you span the the worlds too really nicely of the reality versus the dreamscape, and then mm-hmm. kind of building to like because I think when people hear like oh, there's a dream world, right? That in comics, definitely like the first thing that's going to pop into a lot of people's hands is like Sandman, right? Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times too, it can be like okay, that's an opportunity for artists to just sort of go buck wild with these psychedelic images. But there's kind of a build in Queen of Bad Dreams where it like. It's it's the dream world isn't that chaotic until it builds to a point in terms of suspense and narrative momentum where it is, which I think is pretty cool. Um, It's it's yeah, it's a really, I think, successful collaboration. Uh, How much kind of um, what would you say? Not direction, but like how, how detailed are you in terms of like, here's what I'm envisioning visually for you as opposed to like hey, go wild on a dreamscape, you know, kind of what is the what's the balance that you find for yourself? Um, some of it, uh, it goes back and forth depending on how much I've worked with someone or not. Um, yeah. My default tends to be script enough so that if for some reason, you know, like it's a rough day or, you know, something uh, and they're not like lit up with like a, I'm going to change this whole thing inspiration, give enough, you know, like, so even if I'm, doing like a combat page, you know, scene, you know, that might be two or three pages, right? Like, I'll say, hey, um, these are, you know, the three points that are going to be important, because the next scene will mention them. Um, I will script out this whole fight scene. But you can also ignore every single panel, and I'll go back in. And, you know, like, if I need to do things with dialogue, I'll do that. Um, I love the moment when, you know, like, I put that note in where you can just like, or you could just ignore all of this. And then they come up, come back with something that's like just even better than I could have conceived. Like uh, the first issue fight, for example, in the full silhouette, like that's entirely, you know, Jordy's concept of the silhouette. Um, I think I had some notes about, uh, I think my main contribution to it was like, which sides of the panel, um, uh, our two leads are on so that like there was like some some dream like parallel there but like the whole silhouette and the color structure like that's that's uh dervla and jordy um entirely um there's also parts where it's like i describe the scribble monster as a scribble monster you know just like it looks <laughs> like a creature from like <laughs> a kid's dreams uh yeah. and then jordy came out with like uh that cool shape and then dervla which is uh colored it and actually told me that she colored it in with her left hand so it looked more like a kid. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Uh, which is just yeah. such a cool concept. You look at it. Um, that big monster uh, that uh, Jordan turns into later on, um, I kind of was just like, I basically originally described a weird tentacle monster. And then Jordy was like, uh, I did like half shrimp, half lion. And I was like, this is so cool. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, when I was originally scripting, that first appearance is it was supposed to be the only place you saw the monster. Hmm. Uh, but I fell in love with it so much uh, that I actually restructured <laughs> the last issue so that we could use hmm. um, And it worked out really well uh, in that case. But it's just like stuff like that happens all the time. Like if an artist tells me they had fun doing something, I want them to get to do more of it, you know? Yeah. The second a collaborator tells me like, this is what they're interested in, um, I write towards that, whether that be, you know, oh, you love drawing this character. Let me put another seat, put them in another scene or um, like, say, in um, Quarter Killer. Uh, Jamie Jones is actually like a trained uh, stage uh, combat person. So like he like he's great at many things, but like that's his thing. Right. So yeah. like uh, 
we are we were very very loose on a lot of of that combat you know and would come back with things like Jamie being like hey so I added two pages to this combat like there's just two extra pages in here and we're like I mean if you want to draw two extra pages I'm not going to complain <laughs> you know like yeah. uh you know, and it's that's the point of making a comic as opposed to making a prose piece for me. Hmm. You know, sure. uh, it's a comic because I want to see what happens when we have a team let loose on it. You know, like, yeah, um, if I wanted if I wanted to be really tight on my directions, if I really wanted to be bossy, you know, on every single panel, then I would do it in prose. I can't yeah. draw, so I'm not going to try to do that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the the kind of focus of Queen of Bad Dreams, like there's a something I'm sure you're well, well aware of is like there's this toxic strain of thought regarding minority voices from from like a majority. And it, a lot of it is like questioning that, like, you know, like minorities even really exist. Right. Sometimes we see those questions mm -hmm. in Queen of Bad Dreams. And I, actually, I just saw this. I do a series of X-Men videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments I just saw was ba it was on X Factor, which is a great book. Mm -hmm. it was basically, like in the real world, there aren't all these gay people. And it's it's this really limited, bigoted perception from someone who is clearly yeah. bothered. Right. By yeah. It's just seeing in the world. In the real world, they avoid you like the plague. <laughs> um. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And in Queen of Bad Dreams, you have these literal figments of dreams, you know, awakening, coming to life and trying to carve out a place for themselves. Um, how much of this is intended as kind of queer metaphor or are there other angles that you want to say with all this? Because uh, I did find like the metaphor of this. It's not heavy handed, but it's very clear, I thought. Um, what for you was important to, to convey with that like idea? Uh, for me, it was it was so much about queer women. Um, and and queer women of color in particular um and and how little they're listened to right like how we live in a world in which just every day like in in the most subtle to like the largest ways it doesn't matter who you are or what you are to a certain extent once usually white people in power start constructing a narrative around you right uh you are supposed to be who they need you to be uh even to the point of of sacrificing your truth right so that's why you start out with Dahir like having split with her ex right uh in order to stay in her job you know she w became so deep in this uh in this job of hers as an uh as a judge that she sacrificed literally her perfect family you know like her perfect like her dream to a certain extent uh yeah. not because they don't care about each other but because she made a choice at the time right she didn't see how the two could be blended and she was told that they couldn't be um and then throwing her into a case with a character like like ava where she is initially presented as entirely entirely the dream and story um put together by a white man in charge and even that story the story of the dream that he tells everybody is completely not not what the truth is right like right. He, he even lies about his own fantasy uh yeah. and uh i think especially in this past week where we're seeing you know uh looking at the takes on social media that like reinvent history that just happened an hour ago two hours ago and, you know, like that it is important for me to tell a story, to tell many stories uh, that kind of come back to that, that kind of come back to 
not only that being where we're starting from, but that the answer is community. Uh, I think that that was the secondary theme that was most important to me. Mm. Because I think that, like, so Queen of Bad Dreams very intentionally starts off with that very noir kind of trope, right? You have the femme fatale. You have, you know, well, she works for the Mor- uh, Morphean a- Annex, but I designed her here very, very blatantly as a, you know, that private investigator trope, yeah. right? Um, you know, with the X, you know, with, you know, the, she's the best at what she does, but, you know, she kind of plays with the, with the rules. Right. Um, and most stories that are like that end with the singular hero. Mm -hmm. It ends with, you know, Ava's character continuing to be a femme fatale, uh, or being completely helpless as well. Right. Uh, it doesn't end in families reconciling. It doesn't end, uh, in in mother daughter moments, you know, it yeah. they end with maybe Dahir and Ava, you know, like getting together at the end, and that's like what matters. Which was actually like an early note for me that like when we were kind of loose on the plot, I was like, the one thing I don't want for the end of the story is they do not get together. Mm, <laughs> like it was yeah. very it was very important for me that this care that Ava, who is a reaction to the um, you know like the um, manic pixie dream girl and what happens when she finally gets to be herself doesn't yeah. end up with the protagonist because i'm like that's just repeating the same trope over again um yeah. so what was important to me is that the problems that are presented in in white supremacy in the way that we are distanced from each other um and forced to ch- uh choose against our dreams is are are solved by community by supporting each other you know that's also why viv the narrator of the story is literally a social worker <laughs> you know like yeah that it, that it is about coming back to community and finding some excellent excellent well said yeah no i that's that's awesome to hear i mean i think i was really impressed by how malleable the metaphor feels as well i think too you know just with again you have these these characters from dreams that come to life, right? They come to the real world. They sort of awaken in the dream. And that's the the lead in this, the lead dream character essentially breaks out of this uh, wealthy, uh, you know, white privileged males, um, you know, who's the kind of the controlling like uber wealthy individual who is, you know, the, the villain of the story essentially. Um, but she breaks out of his dream. And then it's about like, to me, it's like, there's a very literal, and I don't know if you meant this, but like we, we have in America right now, we have the dreamers program, right? About like immigrants, like the metaphor can apply very heavily there. I, think, I actually, well. when I was uh, working on it, I started working on this a little before that happened hmm. uh, or not before dreamers, but uh, just slightly before, that conversation. yeah, before uh, the, the Trump part of that conversation. Right. Um, and while I started writing it, uh, I, I was very careful because while immigration wasn't my intended metaphor, um, it would be unfair and disingenuous to pretend like that wasn't a strong part of the world that was necessarily set up, right? Yeah. Like, if you are talking about borders in any way, you know, and it was important for me for there to be, I love, you know, sci-fi and fantasy comics and superhero comics and I'm a very big video game and anime person but it always drives me up the wall when there aren't um it's like these these things have been around for you know decades but we have zero inf- infrastructure to deal with it right mm-hmm. but by nature of building infrastructure you're telling a story that if someone interprets it as a story about immigration like I can't tell them they're wrong <laughs> like 
Like that's what's happening. Uh, I remember when we were designing um, uh, uh, Chase, uh, I think his description uh, I said was like, he is that 30 something year old white dude who the news always still says uh, like is a young man or like a boy. Yeah, right. Um, that always kind of gets that kind of pass. Um, it's very funny how kind of things uh, worked out. Um, I I knew from the beginning that in issue three, for example, that uh, I was going to punch him in the face. Like I that was like what I was ramping up to. Right. That was I was like, for you. <laughs> yeah, that that was a release. It was always going to happen. And I wrote the scene. Uh, and I was kind of struggling with it. It was a very, very different version of the scene uh, when we first uh, uh, did it. Um, in particular, that I just didn't have a particularly interesting setting. And I remember Adrian and I uh, got on the phone for like, uh, very often after he gives me notes, we do like an hour, uh, you know, sometimes even two hour, like kind of just discussion on the phone. Yeah. Um, and we were on the phone trying to break that scene because like it just something wasn't hitting. Uh, and we ended up getting cut off because like signal. So he was like, you know, I'll call you back tomorrow. We'll do another, you know, and we expected like another hour phone call. And that was the night that the college story broke the, the paid oh, admissions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was actually a scholarship student at a, uh, private high school. Right. Um, so like that particularly kind of like hit me yeah. when I was writing that. Um, and so the next day we had a phone call and it was 15 minutes long because I knew exactly now what the scene had to be, you know, like, um, and, you know, that's a pretty good gauge of seeing time periods when I was uh, writing certain issues, uh, is that like, literally, like it was, uh, I fixed that scene in the time it took for me to read, like, Twitter for 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, and then I, I knew what guy he was, because I knew, I knew the people I went, to, the girls I went to school with, and their parents, Yeah, you know, um, and I didn't need to say that, like, anyone paid his way. It didn't matter, you know? Well, and it's it's all yeah. implied just through his relationship yeah. with his mom, right? Who is clearly mm -hmm. the power and the one pulling the strings, yeah. right? And you can just see, like, oh, this is the protection network that has always, always bailed him out. And that's mm -hmm. what the expectation here is as well um, in terms of recovering his dream. No, I, yeah, I mm -hmm. think that all comes across clearly. Uh, what were some of the biggest elements you had? You know, it's five issues, right? So you, you have a limited mm -hmm. amount of space for you to tell a story and it's very tight and I, I think very effective, but what are some of the biggest elements that got left on the cutting room floor? Like, was there stuff that you wish you had been able to tackle or ideas that you wanted to fit in that kind of, you had to, had to weave out? Um, I mean, I always have a million extra ideas. So, <laughs> um, I think that sometimes I fantasize about a world in which I had just one more issue so that uh, uh, just for a little bit more of the end, uh, a little more playing with Eleanor and Ava in particularly, just the two of them. Yeah. Um, or giving more space to uh, the reveal about Eleanor's backstory. Okay. Uh, I think that those are the two places um, that like, you know, a couple of years later, I'm like, oh, wow, I would love that. Um, but really I ended up, and this is partially because it's, it's a dream world, right? So like you can, you can make wild decisions. <laughs> uh, I think when you kind of start with that premise, um, I le I actually added, I think more than I took away. The original outline for the series had I here go into Eleanor's dreams alone. Um, but then I wrote issue three and I was like, it does not happen like that. Like I needed Celine in the end. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the switch to Celine telling the story that happened while I was writing that issue. You know, I realized that uh, 
where I gave characters voices really mattered. Hmm. Um, and having her speak and having her there with her mother and having like even tying it into the, like the original baseball story that she told, um, yeah. you know, like that mattered um, to me a lot. Um, so I was really fortunate that in this story, I got to play with a bit more. Um, I had more space than I thought, <laughs> I think, um, when I first uh, got into it, um, you know, which was interesting because it was really nerve wracking for me. Um, I feel like a lot of writers don't talk about this, but I stalled out for a bit. Um, while while writing um not so much that like it was a thing but like i had times writing the last two issues where just out of like imposter syndrome fear i was like hmm. i i don't know how to do this deciding then that celine was going to be there uh, i think really helped uh me continue writing um and and realize that i was kind of approaching the end uh kind of contrary to what my what my themes were yeah uh but that happened, you know, I, I, I spooked myself because I really, really wanted to land the ending. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. You know, I think at this point, anything that's like, oh, what do you wish you had done? I'm like, well, the team's all here and in good health. So if I ever want to do anything, I'll, you know, email everybody and see what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like then it would be a world you'd you'd potentially want to revisit if you had the right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether it would be the same characters or not. Uh, I don't think it necessarily needs to. Yeah. Um, but it also just kind of depends on whether we end up having a story that is best told in that world again. Sure. You know, uh, I am a fanfic writer from my youth, so I always want to tell stories, more stories in any world, but yeah. it's whether or not that like, that's the best use of the world. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now on the kind of switching gears on the mm -hmm. licensed uh, IP side of things, you've also had the chance to write, you wrote uh, James Bond co-writing with Vidaiella, yep. you mentioned. Uh, it was a, a series from Dynamite Comics. Uh, what was it like writing Bond? You mentioned you're a huge fan. I've seen in interviews that like, you're you're a really big James Bond fan. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, a, I'm a giant Bond nerd. Uh, is uh, I've mentioned this elsewhere, but it was very funny. Like only a month or two uh, before I got the opportunity to pitch, uh, there had been like a moleskin notebook sale and my wife brought like a bunch of notebooks for me, but it was mainly because they had just come out with like a 25th anniversary, like James Bond uh, notebook. Okay. Uh, and I hadn't used it yet. And I was like, at first I was like, not going to use it. Cause I was like, well, what if they don't accept the pitch? Then I will like have started it and I'll feel terrible. And I was like, no, screw it. I'm going to just write my pitch in this. And so like, I use that notebook for the entirety of the run. Nice. Um, yeah. It was scary to pitch, but honestly, Bond is so fun for me to write mm -hmm. that I kept being constantly shocked by how fast, like, I was able to do them, you know? Some yeah. of that also comes from if I was really, you know, stuck when it was my turn to write, you know, like, I could call up Vita and be like, yo, let's figure this out. Uh, but there is nothing more fun uh, than to write uh, Bond getting in trouble with your best friend friend <laughs> like honestly nice. yeah uh i being able to create brandy was just like so wild um and like i spent a lot of time re-watching the craig movies because like i'm a huge bond fan my my uh i can speak today my wife is a huge um daniel craig bond fan 
Mm-hmm. She doesn't care about any of the others, but she took me to see Skyfall like nine times. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful. I was so shocked because like I, she had like never cared about Bond before. And then like every time she met me at work, she was like, let's go see if it's playing. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, so like, it was one of those times where it's like, oh no, I have to do research, you know? Um, and I always, yeah. I love reading about art crime. Um, so that was a really natural plot choice for me because I was like, what's, you know, thinking about like that scene in the museum in Skyfall, but just in general, it's very, where's a place that Bond looks like he belongs and would literally just want to like jump out a window if he had to deal with. And it's, it's an art gallery. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, it is the stuff where he cannot and look like he belongs. And he's like, I don't care about any of this or, you know, um, and so that's really fun for me, uh, writing um, Bond being annoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, making up the little weird, like, not just uh, tools that he uses, but, like, the the little weird ways that he uh, does combat. Uh, by little weird ways, I mean a baby shark. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> right. I will never be more proud of anything. Uh, I think I called Vita and was like, I'm going to hit him with a baby shark. And Vita was like, I have no clue what you're talking about. And then I had to remember that I hadn't finished the conversation. And uh, I remember emailing Nate, because uh, this was like probably the silliest thing that I did in the whole run. Mm-hmm. Um, and emailing Nate and like, just kind of like, LOL, I was thinking about, you know, hitting B- James with, you know, like a shark in case he was like, no, that's outrageous. And I think his response was to send me the, the fish slapping Monty Python <laughs> skit. And I was like, all right, you let me do it. <laughs> uh, so like, it was just, I was really surprised by like, you know, there's pressure, but there's a difference between pressure and the writing being difficult. And I didn't feel like the writing was a struggle in that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. No, it's it's a it's a I don't want to say it's a quick read, but like it, it moves fast, you know, like yeah. story does. Right. Because it's you know, it's it's action and it's art heist and it's mm-hmm. it's cool. Um, One thing I was struck by, too, is like how in the early going, like how small a role Bond actually plays. You know, you kind of drop him in like this. Mm-hmm. uh I don't know what the what the right analogy is, but it's just, you know, it's this all of a sudden, oh, there's the bomb bomb. And it's like, yeah. oh, you know, it's like you're waiting for it, but it's you establish Brandy, especially as this character who it, you become really invested in reading the story. And that was a cool thing, too, to see like a Bond story, but from a different perspective, you know, where, like you said, like Bond is this. We all know his deal. We all, mm-hmm. even if, you know, I'm not a huge Bond person, but I've seen enough media, right, to know that, like, okay, he can get out of anything. He's the he's the ultimate spy, etc. Um, but then to see him, like, yeah, I don't really know art, and I'm kind of annoyed. I have to have a partner on this. <laughs> like, yeah, good. It's a good role for that to be in. No, it's cool. Um, it, now another one, like another kind of huge, like icon in pop culture is Captain America, and you're going to be writing, uh, or maybe have written this King in Black Captain America story coming up. Uh, what can you tell us about like what that's going to be and kind of what it's like writing a cap story? Um, well, for context, um, while I'd been reading, sorry, one second, I'm also need to remember what the solicit is so I can remember what I can say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I was reading comic, but I had stopped for a little bit uh, after um in high school came back but i was mostly reading dc but the thing that got me into marvel was uh back into marvel i should say was a friend of mine during like the whole civil war run 
-hmm. and my roommate had given me like the winter soldier stuff um and and all of that uh which is just blew my mind like the first piece of original art i ever uh, bought and i can like look literally look directly up above me is like bucky being tortured by faust uh by like it by epting um i i'm a huge fan of just the whole cat group um and it's really surreal to me to be able to to be writing not only you know steve but also to have like bucky and sam in there too you know like yeah um i i don't think it's uh i don't think i'm ashamed to say that like when i saw the beginning of the email uh i just i just like from my editor uh just like the first sentence, you know, saying, you know, you know, Cap and, you know, King in Black. I legit couldn't finish reading it because I just burst into tears. <laughs> like, I'm a yeah. giant nerd. So, like, I burst into tears and had to, uh, a lot of these stories involve the moment where I call Vita to calm the hell down uh, and just, like, <laughs> hyperventilate to Vita over the phone. Yeah. Like, I was just like, I just, it's here. And then I was like, oh, I should read the rest of the email, I guess. Um, <laughs> like, it was just one of those moments. Um, and I'm super glad. Um, and they're letting me deal with, um, no spoilers, but they're letting me deal with, I think, um, not just with King and Black, but uh, I think a lot of emotional and psychological concerns that Steve has had for a while now. Mm. Um, and that the King and, the whole King and Black event kind of just bring to the fore again. Um, and I think that a lot of, good stories about cap one uh are when he he is with other soldiers in this case his friends yeah um but also just when you land on a moment in which the symbolization of captain america and what he represents falls directly in line with the with the story you want to tell it feels really good um in the same way that like I try to do a lot of um, subtle stuff in Queen of Bad Dreams, I think I get to do some of that here. Um, yes. Also, I was just straight up like, yo, can this just be like a horror book? And they were like, of course. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm yeah, no, that's, that's the like, that's of the event, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, also just like, there's fun stuff you get to do because uh, one of the things that I love about what Donnie does with his Venom is he's got this amazing balance between a modern comic, but like still with some of those 90s sensibilities. Yeah. The way he uses uh, like narrative caption, for example, like some of that stylization, right? Mm. Um, but it's still a very modern comic. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm also a fan of like old school, like 70s horror to a certain extent, like those old horror comics. And uh so taking a little bit of a cue from Donnie, I, I was like trying to play with that a little bit. Interesting. Cool. I'm looking forward to that issue. Do you know, uh, I think that's in February, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes. Be in, the, in the coming weeks here. Awesome. Oh, gosh, it's next month. <laughs> I have no <laughs> sense of time on a regular day. So yeah. sometimes I'm just like, oh, oh, yeah, that that's going to happen. That's a real thing. It is. It is absolutely yeah, solicited and everything. Oh, that's very cool. Um, all right. So what is what's up next for you uh, aside from that or any other things that you want to plug or just where people can find you? Oh, yeah. Um, can't say anything about what it's about, uh, but uh, Vault did announce uh, that I am doing um, another book with them, uh, with uh, Georgia Esposito, uh, yeah. which I'm very, very excited about. Um, I've kind of already said, uh, if you think like the fun weirdness uh, that kind of happens in Queen of Bad Dreams 
uh is fun. Uh, I think you'll really, really like this uh, one. This is very much me as a writer going, I'm going to make a comic in which I do everything I enjoy. Um, And I also wanted to tell a story that is a little less obvious, you know, you know, like black and white, good and bad. Mm. Uh, I think just in terms of the kinds of characters that uh, we encounter. So I think that that is really fun for me. Um, And it's still very queer and very brown all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, Real quick hits here. What are you listening to and what are you reading? What are some music and comics recs you have for us? Oh, what am I listening to now? Um, I went back and listened to a lot of Dermot Kennedy uh, yesterday, which is really great if you like... uh, you know, uh, guitar and kind of like gospel inspired uh, music. Uh, and Jamie yeah. N. Commons. I'm a big fan of Jamie N. Commons. Uh, he doesn't have a singular album, but like he does a lot of stuff with other people. Um, so like a very long playlist on Spotify. Uh, most people probably know him because he was on that. Uh, he was on a couple of tracks with X Ambassadors, which is where I learned about him. Sure. Uh, like he did Jungle and... Um, one other that I'm blanking on right now, but his stuff is really, really good. Um, as for reading, I'm reading everything all the time. Uh, I made a list of all my unread or halfway through uh, read stuff right now. Um, and it's so long. Um, in comics, I'm rereading Werewolf by Night right now. Hmm. Um, just all the old like the, stuff. Like the 70s? Oh, yeah. The, I, the issues, yeah. Uh, back when I was working retail, uh, we had a sale and immediately I dove for the entire giant Omnibuy. Nice, yeah. Um, especially since some of the stuff towards the end of that old stuff I hadn't read yet. So like, I know that there's like an Iron Man issue in there that I'm very mm. excited about. Uh, but all that old stuff, um, no one's surprised. I like Werewolf by Night. Um, let's see. I was, um, often I just kind of go through Marvel Unlimited and pick, you know, a hero for the day and kind of run through that. Uh, so. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Ghost Rider right now, a uh, little bit of Deathlock, like stuff like that. Um, and then I'm reading um, a nonfiction book called African Samurai, uh, which is about a uh, black samurai um, who, like an African samurai who uh, eventually served under Nobunaga uh, after coming to Japan with uh, the Jesuits. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very, very good. Highly recommend. Cool. Cool. Those are awesome recommendations. Thank you. Well, Danny, this has been a pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for joining. I really enjoyed uh, getting to talk to you and hear about this. We'll look for uh, links to all your upcoming works here in the show notes of what I got. But otherwise, uh, everybody keep your eyes peeled for what's coming from Danny in 2021 because there should be some pretty cool comics. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.